Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and we're continuing our series of conversations about immigration, a big, broad topic that has so many implications in our everyday lives. And we are delighted to welcome to the program today, Pia Arrhenius. Uh, Pia, glad to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. So let me introduce you a little further and say that uh, Piet is the vice president and senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. Uh, she also served uh, in the Bush administration in uh, uh, 2004 and five in, uh, in the uh, Council of Economic Advisors, uh, the executive office of the president. And so she's been at work in the labor sector, especially of immigration for a long time. And what's more, she's even written journal articles and books about this, including one I hope we'll talk about a little bit called Beside the Golden Door, uh, U.S. Immigration Reform in a New Era of Globalization. Uh, big words there, uh, but uh, a reference to Emma Lazarus's poem uh, on the Statue of Liberty. So again, uh, you come well-equipped to give us insights that most of us mere mortals um, really don't have Pia uh, as, as we wrestle with this, this matter. But I, I suppose let's start with um, the, uh, the labor market and the immigration, the economic uh, portion of this, because I think um, very often we do this uh, conversation around culture and around uh, our national identity and around questions of how many people can we manage in terms of immigration, things of that nature. But uh, as I understand it, we are uh, finding ourselves in a tremendous challenge with uh, a GDP that is projected to slow uh, over the next decade and largely um, because of a shortage in the labor market, uh, as I understand it. And uh, we have a declining birth rate. Uh, and that's true, not just of uh, US citizens and Anglos, but also remarkably of uh, Hispanic folk who uh, are um, uh, making the choice not to have as large of families. So this becomes a really important question, immigration, uh, that is not only a political one, not only a partisan one, but really one of the very uh, question of uh, our, flourishing economy. Uh, so uh, help us make some sense of that and uh, go beyond the, the quick summary I gave. And, and if you want to dispute anything I just said, that'd be great too. So. No, I think what you said is correct, George. So we are basically at a period in sort of American history, economic and demographic history, at which uh, labor force growth and by extension, obviously, population growth is, uh, is slowing dramatically. And what's particularly impacting the labor force at this juncture is the retirement of the baby boomers. The baby boomers was a very large cohort for its time, and they've contributed immensely to the labor market. And so they're all retiring basically starting now or a few years ago, you know, really over the next 10 to 15 years. So the loss of that gigantic cohort at the same time that we're also seeing a pronounced decline in the birth rate, as you mentioned, that really started about 2007. 
So we're about 15 years into that slowdown. And so on all these levels, and at the same time, the workers that we have are aging, obviously, we're all aging, uh, but we're aging faster because we have fewer cohorts of new workers joining. And so really the growth rate of the economy uh, is, is, is to a large extent determined by the growth rate of the labor force, which is of course, by extension, the growth rate of the population. So with all those things feeding into it, we're looking at substantially slower uh, labor force growth, which means substantially slower economic growth. Now, that can partly be addressed by immigration, not entirely addressed by immigration. There's a lot of other things we can do to sort of give people incentive to work. Um, but, uh, but if we're interested in growing the economy and keeping the growth rates um, sort of where we're used to having them, then, then immigration has to be part of the answer. So let me possibly push it to the other side or the unintended consequences of what happens when we uh, have a, uh, a sort of focus only on economic expansion and meeting uh, uh, the birth rate and growing the economy, because we also find ourselves in this moment with uh, a, a real danger of climate uh, change and of the impact of, uh, of more uh, people on the globe, right? So uh, in a sense, we're talking about how the labor market and the economy is harmed in a sense by not having replacement level at least of, of birth rate. And yet overall, uh, it may be to the betterment of the planet and our, uh, our overall well-being if we maybe aren't replacing everyone that we have uh, because the demand for uh, more and more just puts more pressure on nature. Uh, so how do you balance uh, the, the real needs of, uh, of a sense of, yes, we, we focus on, on growth because that ultimately is good for everyone because the pie grows, right? And, and yet, on the other hand, we're diminishing our resources and maybe harming the planet more. Do you, how much do you reckon with all of that in all the algorithms you come up with in your work? Well, it's true. Uh, it's true that, of course, being at the Federal Reserve, we're very focused on, on economic growth. So that really is our big objective, uh, among a few others. But, but it's true that in more recent years, this idea of just growing bigger and bigger has come under attack and criticism and for valid reasons. Uh, because really, do we want to grow? We know the effects on the climate. We know the effects on resources. Uh, we know that we care now maybe more than ever about the quality of life as opposed to just, you know, having more of it. Um, and so all these are considerations that need to be taken into account. But I think no matter what we do, we're going to slow because there's, like I said, there's just too many factors feeding into the slowing of economic growth and population growth more generally. And so even with immigration and more liberal immigration, we're still going to have we're still going to have slowing growth. The tricky thing is that immigration is not just make us bigger. It also makes us better. And what do I mean when I say that it makes us more productive and more efficient in how we run our economy. So immigrants come in and they tend to be contribute on a number of levels. They tend to address bottlenecks in the labor market. So maybe, for example, types of occupations um, where we're, uh, we have shortages or bottlenecks. 
Um, they also come in and they tend to be more entrepreneurial. So they start more businesses on average than natives do. Um, and so, and they tend to be more innovative. So there's been studies that show, especially high-skilled immigrants that come in the STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, and math, a lot of computer uh, occupations, and also in the medical fields, they're contributing to research and development, new technologies, new medicines. And so you also have that dimension. So with immigration, yes, you get more people, but you also get a more productive economy. And at the end of the day, it's productivity growth that makes us all better off. Um, so we would have to think really hard about cutting off immigration for the purposes of trying to contain growth. When we know that immigration is part of the puzzle, it's one, what makes, what lifts productivity growth and what makes us better off, you know, the per capita, what we say, economists say the per capita GDP grows, not just the GDP growing. And that's really has to be the goal. It has, the goal has to be trying to increase the standard of living of Americans. Okay, so um, we have gotten into some fairly deep uh, economic language that I think some of our viewers might not fully appreciate uh, if they don't have uh, PhDs in economics as you do, or even just a bachelor's in business as I do, uh, weirdly as a pastor. Um, but, uh, but I think you, you made the claim that productivity is a really important factor uh, in making uh, our economy better and making our lives better. And I, I think when you say productivity, I think it's helpful for people to understand that that requires more efficient work, right? That we're talking about uh, the output being done uh, in a more efficient way. So talk a little bit more about productivity and why that would be a key and why immigrants really help that process. So productivity, uh, it can come about, you can be more efficient in how you do. It can just be you and us being more efficient about how we you know, work less hours, but produce the same amount or, or produce even more uh, just in how we organize ourselves. Or like you can use technology and become more efficient. So you can certainly, you know, you don't have to travel to a meeting. You can just do a Zoom meeting. That's a that's a that's an efficiency gain there. But productivity here, also, yes. Here we are using Zoom and having a podcast. So there we are, right? Exactly. Right. So we saved a lot of time, you know, commuting and not having to go. Although I do, you know, I do relish meeting people in person. So I do miss that. But but yeah, it is it is an example of an efficiency. And then more importantly, really, it's innovation uh, and, and, entrepreneur, and entrepreneurialism. And so innovation, when people come together and they come up with new technologies, and I mentioned medicines and things like that are also the things that make us able to produce a lot more with less. Um, and so doing things better, doing things smarter um, is the key to increasing the standard of living and making us all better off. And it just so happens that immigrants are a very key piece of that. We have a lot of studies that show that. Um, and so we have to, you know, that's that's one of the biggest reasons, you know, I think that that even in light of our concerns about growing bigger and consuming the planet's resources and climate and all those, I think those things can be addressed in a certain way, um, a smart way, but not necessarily by having to cut off the things that help us grow, especially grow productivity like immigration. Well, and if we're even talking about the climate, the idea of innovation in the energy field is a critical part of that too. And I think that often when we think of immigration, we're we, we are focused on the Southern border, 
And uh, we can talk about that a little more, and we almost always do in this respect. But there's there's also the factor that you, you were talking about how, um, you know, some of the most innovative breakthroughs that have taken place in this country and for the world, technologically in the internet age and with computer technology and the like, are the product of immigrants who have come to school in this country and who have stayed and who have created these remarkable businesses. And all you have to do is say the word Google and, and you could just about stop there even though the Google story is multiplied many times over, right? So when, when people think about immigration, they also need to be thinking about this enormous human capital that comes to us uh, through immigration that if we just use a ham-fisted approach to limiting immigration, we're really cutting off our nose to spite our face, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, what's unfortunate is that, like you mentioned, the southern border is that the whole debate over managing the border and illegal immigration or unauthorized immigration, that that sort of debate tarnishes all the other efforts to do immigration reform and that are affecting, you know, high-skilled immigrants, medium-skilled immigrants, you know, family-based immigrants. There's just so many pieces to the immigration policy puzzle that we have to be very careful. And, and I think we're asking a lot of the public, but I think it's fair to ask them to, to make these separate issues and to treat them separately and to say, you know what, I want my government to run and manage immigration, make sure it's legal, uh, you know, bring in what's gonna benefit the American economy and then by extension also the global economy. Uh, but I'm going to trust them to be able to do the job and so allow sort of reform to move forward, even though we are bogged down in certain areas. And certainly at the southern border, we are bogged down to a certain extent as we try to figure out how to deal with so many people coming uh, and wanting to, to come into the United States. So as we're doing this, I think it's helpful to step back and say that you can look at this from an economic and labor market perspective. You can look at it from a nationalistic perspective on how do you manage the people coming into your, your country and a cultural perspective and those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, this program is called Good God. <laughs> so we're, we're always trying to make a connection to the human aspect of this and the spiritual and, and draw upon what is it about our religious traditions that informs this conversation. And, you know, from the account of Genesis, we have that we're uh, given a mandate to work, uh, to that it's very much a part of the dignity of human beings, that they are able to fulfill being made in the image of God, that they get to, uh, to till the earth and work it, and to, uh, to make more of creation, uh, and then to do so we also have one story after another of migration that is at the very heart of it. You know, when, when uh, the, the children of Israel, uh, Jacob's family, were experiencing famine, what did they do? They went to Egypt, right? They left their home because of circumstances in uh, their, their homeland, and they went to Egypt. And then, of course, things went bad in Egypt because of oppression and corrupt government and a labor market that was not functioning properly. And so they were called out of there and then went into ultimately the promised land. All of this is a migration story, right? Uh, and it's all about human flourishing and the right of people 
to actually have an opportunity to work and to contribute and to eat and to have healthy lives. So, you know, when, when religious people actually look at their uh, at a story like this, one of the struggles is how do we have conversation with people who are only looking at, yeah, but our nation has a right to guard its borders. You know, and, and we we should or shouldn't have somebody taking our job or we need somebody to come and do this job. It, there's a bigger picture here, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, and I'll turn the question back. Isn't there the one I, I don't know, remember where in the Bible this is about the, you know, about the stranger and letting the stranger in and sharing your food oh, with. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there's, you know, part of the Hebrew tradition is that you leave the corners of your field unharvested so that the poor are able to come and eat without uh, losing their dignity. Uh, they don't have to have a handout. It's left for them, you know. So, so I mean, there's all sorts of things like that. The welcoming of the stranger uh, as if he or she is one of your own is part of the biblical story. And it's a part that we conveniently forget at times, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's the one sort of that, you know, me personally, obviously, that I sort of remind myself about that. But the nice thing about immigration is that, you know, it's almost a win-win. When it's well done and well managed, it can it can be a win-win. So we can benefit from the from the labor and also from the other uh, contributions of immigrants to our society. Uh, we can let them in and we benefit and they benefit because they're so much better off than where they came from in most cases. So it really is a win-win where it's not a big sacrifice to let people in. I mean, we just have to remind ourselves that we are being made better off on average from the arrival of the, and, and we're also helping them. So that's good. But the, of course, at the same time, you know, you have to be practical and you have to think we can't take everybody. Um, and we can't hurt ourselves in taking in too many and hurt ourselves. I mean, by, by, you know, fueling political division and anger and, and resentment and that type of thing. And we have a responsibility to bring people in, in a planned, managed way, a number that is not too overwhelming, a number that does not disrupt labor markets or throw native workers out of jobs. I mean, we have to do this carefully and, and it can be done. Absolutely, it can be done. And I think it's unfortunate that I think that, you know, I was in the White House a very short period of time, but I, I mean, I'd love to go back and just give them more advice because I think I know how how we can do it uh, in terms of. of, of doing how can we do it, Pia? Come on. <laughs> and, and we'll just broadcast this to the White House. OK. Oh, okay. yeah. OK, George, sounds good. Well, I think absolutely essential to manage the border, absolutely essential to be out there, be humanitarians, respect refugee law, but also to say, you know, we're not going to be taken advantage of. You know, there's a lot of, there's bad actors out there. There's people that are going to, you know, coming for all kinds of different reasons. I think we we get to set the criteria for who gets to come and and when and how. Um, and, and, and that's it. We, we need to manage it very clearly. We need to put the numbers out in terms of how many we can take. And then we take that many. And, and we do really have to control, uh, control the flow. Because if you look, for example, now at the southern border, I mean, there's just, if you look at the whole rest of the world, I mean, we're a big country, we're 330 million people. But, you know, there's still, you know, billions and billions out there, most of whom want to come to the United States if given the chance. 
Um, but I think what we've shown in recent years is, I mean, right now it looks like the border is out of control, but generally I don't think that's the case. It's more under control than it's, than it's ever been. Uh, you know, we have 20,000 border patrol agents down there doing the best job they're, you know, they, they can for the most part. Um, and so I think we've shown that, um, that, we, that we can manage the flow and, and, and that's what we have to continue doing. And then at the same time, I think our priority has to be the people that are already here. So we have, we have about, we think 10 to 12 million undocumented immigrants. And of course I've written about this in, in my book that you mentioned and in other papers and so forth. And my reasoning there is that we really have to take care of this group of people they have to be uh, legalized somehow, some way. Um, and then we need to do that first. And then we need to look out for outward and, and, and bring in, you know, the people that we, we believe, you know, for humanitarian reasons and to help our economy and for, for all the different reasons that we bring people in. But we also already have immigrants here that have to be taken care of. There's a lot of reasons um, that, that, that this situation has to be addressed. Okay. So, uh, the the taking care of those who are already here, and in fact, the taking care of those who are seeking asylum, who have been brought in, I mean, it does seem that we have uh, lots of people, you say 20,000 uh, at the border, uh, who are um, law enforcement at the border of one form or another, immigration force, but it, it does seem that we do not have the staffing necessary to uh, go through immigration courts and to vet people in a timely fashion, which is itself just an enormous backlog. And then you have these, you know, these DACA uh, kids who uh, who grew up here. Some of them are adults now, and they still haven't, you know, had their their opportunity. So, uh, how do we convince Congress uh, to uh, and the administration? To, to really reform immigration, not just in terms of policies of how many come in, but the allocation of resources and staffing so that we can treat people humanely and, and, and move people through in an efficient way. There's a lot of change that can be made. I mean, there's some real low hanging fruit. I've talked to, for example, the immigration judges that do uh, you know, the refugee, the refugee or the asylum cases, for example. And so it's a very poorly organized in the sense that one random immigration judge will get a case from, you know, Cameroon, uh, a scientist docket. And so he has to go through and study everything about Cameroon and what was the political persecution in Cameroon of what groups and this and that, um, you know, and then his next case may be, you know, a Chinese immigrant who wants, you know, asylum. And, and so, I mean, one easy thing would be to just you know, assign one judge to all the cases from Cameroon, another one, all the cases from China, and they can become specialists and experts, and yep. then they can process those cases much faster. But I mean, these judges are trying to process these cases and they don't have resources. They don't get analysts and so forth to help them. So that's just an example of some of the low hanging fruit. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that we could be doing things better. And I think it's, what's frustrating to me is that you know, these easy opportunities are out there. And it just seems like what really is lacking is the ability to make change and lasting, intelligent, smart choices. Okay. All right. So you wrote this book, um, Beside the Golden Door. And uh, I, I think 
And the Lazarus's uh, poem, The New Colossus, that is on the base of the Statue of Liberty, uh, was is something that a lot of us know um, or know about. Uh, it's a sonnet, and I'll just read the last few lines that are the most familiar so that we can remember these together and then let you comment on them. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuge of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Oh my. It's so beautiful. It is so beautiful. But now, Pia, that poem was written not just in a vacuum, uh, to put on this gift, of course, uh, from, uh, from France uh, that sits in our New York Harbor, where I grew up and where my father, by the way, was a ship pilot in New York Harbor. So um, I spent a lot of time going past that on the New York Ferry, uh, the Staten Island Ferry. And uh, so uh, the context of this was a time when lots of new refugees were coming into uh, the country and there was a lot of tension uh, in people's minds about uh, about all these um, Italians and Eastern Europeans and, and uh, Jews, Russian Jews and, and the like. And we have in the background of that, the, uh, the limitation of Chinese immigrants that had happened just a few years earlier. And so uh, talk to us about how this poem uh, speaks to uh, immigration today, or is it only an artifact of a day gone by that we can't any longer afford? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And there's people who argue that, you know, back then, because we didn't really have a lot of social services or spending on, you know, on, on, on new arrivals or other poor and low, low income families, that, that it was possible to bring in, you know, large, large numbers of of immigrants and that it's no longer possible because we have this social safety net that whereby we have to we have to provide for them. So so I guess I would say I would I still love the poem and I think it still holds true, but you know, it has a little footnote on it, you know, which kind of destroys it, I guess, but a little footnote that says, you know, uh, we're gonna take as many as we as we can, sort of, you know, we're gonna do the best that we can. Uh, you know, help those that we can in the sense that, but again, I mean, our first responsibility is to Americans, uh, people that are already here. Um, and so, I mean, not just Americans, but Americans, other immigrants, other anyone who's already here, our responsibility is first and foremost to them. So, so we try to fulfill these obligations to the extent possible, but without really uh, you know, like I said, disrupting the labor market, disrupting the social contract, uh, with the people that we already have. Um, but that's possible. Uh, you can totally do it. Um, you just have to, for example, and this is also, we talk about this in our book, is you can't have too much low-skilled immigration. And by that, I mean low-wage workers and, and maybe refugees and asylum seekers to a certain extent. You, have, you can bring in a certain amount, make sure, you know, disperse them across the country, make sure they go to growing regions, which we do, actually, um, so that they're, you know, they can easily transition into the labor market. 
and manage it that way. We can't bring in, you know, unlimited numbers. We can't have open borders. We, you know, this has to be managed because first and foremost, we're accountable to the people that are already here. But it's but it's doable and it's beautiful for the people that we can help. And I think we have some recent experiences where, you know, the government has really decreased quotas on refugees, for example, to a point which is was almost absurd. Um, you know, something like 10,000 refugees in a year was one of the quotas or 15,000 is what they wanted to lower it to. But we're a country of 330 million. I mean, that's that's not nearly enough to accommodate really what, I mean, we are accountable to the rest of the world. We have to do our part. Um, so, so, so bring in a good number, but also bring in a good balance, you know, make sure you're balancing it out so that you bring in uh, all kinds of immigrants. And that's going to really make sure that we don't get too much of any one kind or that resources uh, are not overwhelmed. To your point about how this can be done, uh, maybe we could point to the experience in Germany uh, where Angela Merkel um, put her career on the line in uh, welcoming Syrian refugees and others from war-torn areas uh, that were coming, mostly Muslim population. Uh, and she, um, she said, you know, we're going to take them. While other countries were putting up fences, uh, she took them and they have, uh, they required them to learn German. Uh, they, you know, uh, were able to space them throughout the country and to address some of the pockets in the labor market that have been unaddressed. And they have in integrated into that economy uh, more than a million of them. Uh, and she, everyone told her that that couldn't be done. It would ruin the culture. But there was a kind of sort of redemption in the German psyche, I think, about being willing uh, to be uh, in a uh, saving mode uh, after World War II, that this was their moment that they could do this. And I, I wonder if, what, what would it take for us to learn some lessons from some place like Germany in that regard, and to think about renewing our own spirit of being that Emma Lazarus place of, of welcome? It, it, was a, it was a beautiful moment, uh, sort of when she, when, when Angela Merkel did that, as you pointed out, and really allowed, you know, over a million refugees to come into Germany just in, in a very short period of time. I will say, however, that I, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> and the reason I wouldn't have done it is because what followed was a big backlash and yeah. a lot of controversy and spurring the anti-immigrant movement at the same time. So I still believe that the best way to get consensus and buy-in is to do this, do it slowly, do it gradually. Um, you know, it's very, it's very heartwarming to open your arms and welcome people in as many as, you know, and, and that was a huge number. But beware, because, you know, what happened in the years following was that there was a backlash. And we're, I think we are accountable, um, like I said, you know, we have to be careful and we have to do things in, in a gradual way. And so even though 
Uh, we'd like to do big things, and 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 that's that's very admirable. But again, we're managing. This is a long-term game, because yeah. really, we need the immigrants to come in. We need them to be accepted. We don't want discrimination. We don't want racism. We want an inclusive economy. And so we need buy-in from everyone that's here already. And so that's our job. Our job is to bring them in in a way that that we still maintain the buy-in from the people that are already here, and that people can see us. Well, you're really talking my language now, I think, in terms of the, the religious and spiritual obligation to help, um, you know, create the, um, the spirit of welcome and to, uh, to, to change the attitudes of people so that there's not a backlash. And politically, we're seeing that we're, we're really wrestling with that right now in our country overall. Uh, but maybe we can prayerfully work together to uh, find a new uh, cooperation. Certainly immigration is one we have to have that on. And Pia, thank you for all you're doing in your space uh, to make us better and to make us uh, more humane and uh, flourishing as a nation. Thank you, George. Thank you for having me. Delightful. Take care. Bye-bye. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.